0: This is Andrew Smith with the Rally Call Podcast. You listeners got into sales for a reason to have a long and prosperous career. You wonder where it can lead and what you will learn about the craft, the business world, the industry, and most of all, about yourself. If you're starting out in tech sales or are in the middle of your career, it's difficult to see where this journey can lead. You're always looking 90 days out to the end of the quarter, and you want to know, is this all there is? Will this life be the same 90-day cycle repeated four times a year, punctuated with a sales kickoff, and if you're lucky, a president's club? There are a handful of people who can provide you with the perspective of a 30-year career in technology sales, which includes multiple acquisitions and exits, internal battles won and lost, and a lifetime of personal and professional development. Greg Wolf is one of those people. This episode is a special one for us, and it requires some context. John and I worked with Greg in the early 2000s, when there was a battle amongst the business intelligence vendors for one to reign supreme. Through a series of twists and turns, we won that battle as much on the quality of the leadership as on the sales execution and the product itself. At the time, the business intelligence market was one of the toughest battles happening in the technology market. Business objects, crystal decisions, Cognos, Hyperion, MicroStrategy, were all trying to dominate the market. Similar to today, in any market in software, it's dominated by a single player, the 800-pound gorilla. And the secondary vendors... They get to compete for the scraps. Business intelligence did not yet have a single dominant player. Cognos, Business Objects, and MicroStrategy were the leaders. And at Crystal Decisions, we were trying to break into the higher levels of this market, where the contracts were in the millions of dollars and not the sub-100k deals that we were doing. The stakes were high. The winner would be able to command either a high share price through an IPO or a sale of the company. The losers could limp along fighting for the scraps or, at best, get sold at a discounted price. And it was Greg Wolf leading Crystal Decisions into this battle. The legacy of Greg's seller's journey cannot be overstated. The number of people who worked in Greg's sales organizations who have gone on to become CEOs, CROs, founders, VPs, and successful sales leaders is staggering. The alumni of that organization is busy creating their own legacies and bringing the lessons they learned to others. There is so much to digest in this podcast that we have had to break it into a two-part series. Listen to this podcast to understand what is possible for a seller's journey, what to look for in a company and its leadership, how the right leader can make or break your career early on why going against your gut is more often than not a mistake, and how to use the lessons along the way to understand your own strengths and weaknesses. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as we had making it.
1: I'm John Feldman. And I'm Andrew Smith. And this is The Rally Call. And we're live. Welcome to episode nine of The Rally Call. Now, today we have a very special guest, a person who has been very influential in Andrew's career and my career, Greg Wolf. Greg, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, guys. Great to see you. Uh, Long time listener, by the way. Fantastic to be here.
1: Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit about your career? Maybe go over some highlights, some roles you had, some things that you did.
2: Sure. Well, without like doing an entire resume of my experience, I've been a bag carrier um, back in Xerox in the late 80s through 90s, then into you know, middle management, moved into upper management at a company here in Vancouver called Crystal Decisions, and then kind of into executive management with Business Objects, and most recently... Uh, was the chief operating officer at a Bay Area company called Marketo, um, which uh, was sold to Adobe just a couple of years ago. And now I do advisory work to largely startups or mid-sized companies or occasionally some uh, investment firms in uh, different ways, shapes, and forms.
0: So let's go back to your time of being a bag carrier, as you put it, which I love that term. How did you get into sales? And, and this is a question that I ask people when I'm interviewing them uh, for a job, because I'm always fascinated about the path that different people take to get into sales. So wh- what was yours? How did you get into the business?
2: And, you know, I think I was going to be in sales. I had intended to uh, follow in my father's footsteps. He was a car salesman, 35 years, sold uh, Mercury's at the same dealer in Regina, Saskatchewan. And uh, I kind of saw that world and and I had—I have other family. All went into professional careers. Uh, I was intent on uh, being a financial advisor or broker, and then a Black Friday of '87 hit. Yes, that's how old I am, and um, no one was hiring any brokers. So I—I I had a look, and my my brother-in-law was working for Xerox, or sorry, had worked for Xerox. He had just left. He had a great car, fabulous fur coat. Uh, seemed to, you know, enjoy his life quite a bit. And, um, I was talking to him, he goes, Hey, I can set up an interview for you. Maybe should go try it out. And I thought to myself, really, I went to university. I'm going to go sell copiers. Well, what I found is I sold copiers, typewriters, fax machines, paper, toner supplies, you name it, and started out with a territory in uh, rural Saskatchewan, but it couldn't have been a better training ground. And what drew me to it was basically um, I had a chance to join a couple of CA firms. They were gonna pay me 18,000 a year for two years uh, each year. And then hopefully something came of it and a bank manager job that was gonna pay me 22,000 a year. And I don't mean to sound like I'm Michelle, shallow, but Xerox said on target, you'll make 36. And in my first year I made 50 and I thought I was sitting on top of the world back in 1988. And from there, it, it, it just kind of evolved. Um, I don't think I'm a natural salesperson. I've met so many who are so much better at it, but um, that's how I got into it. And it just kind of stuck to me.
1: We've talked a little bit about Xerox in some past episodes. Tell us about the culture that Xerox had and how different that culture is from what today's tech firms are.
2: Well, I'll start with what Xerox culture was. Xerox these days, I think, is not a recognizable company if you kind of think about how it was in 88. But as I came out of university, uh, Xerox had a very sales-forward culture, incredible sales-forward culture. And um, from day one, in fact, from the interviews and then into day one, they made you feel very special. And there was an enormous responsibility that came being hired to Xerox because it meant you surpassed many, many people in that process. And after you went through your induction, which was three weeks in Leesburg, Virginia, you came out of there believing, quite naively, frankly, but believing that you were God's gift to sales. You had been trained on spin selling. You'd been videoed countless times over and critiqued around every step of the sales process that Xerox had. And by the time you got done, it was it was like Top Gun for sales, and when you got done and came back to your territory, you definitely felt like versus any other competition, I had the very best product and I had the very best training and I had no excuses. It was really up to me, and that culture was incredibly powerful, um, and and it built confidence in a 21 year old who had no reason to be as confident as I was, but you know it. it Probably led to me taking direction better too, because how could I question these guys? They were the best at it, and um, and I learned a great deal as a result of it. And I learned an awful lot from the school of hard knocks because I had the confidence to just go try. And uh, so, as a as an entry level employee, that culture was was um, you know arguably, as I reflect back on it, I I don't know if I could have landed in a better spot for me.
1: One of the things that we talked about was it, when you're going to kick off your sales career after you've made the decision to do a sales career in the first place is to go to a company that's going to invest in you and give you baseline level skills where there's people around you that have won the Stanley Cup. It sounds as if Xerox instilled those skills in you. Is that fair?
2: Certainly as a seller, of which I was for about five years, um, absolutely, the institution of Xerox and its approach to dealing with customers, not just selling, but looking after their problems and um, the necessity for that and then being a differentiator through service and recognizing people across all aspects of the business, but in particular, salespeople with a great responsibility to sell the right product to the right problem so that you didn't have problems after the fact. That entire culture, um, frankly, in my opinion, gave me, and I, I mentioned this to my, my own kids who are exploring different career paths. In your first job, go get your real bachelor's degree. You're getting your bachelor's degree from the university, but the School of Hard Knocks bachelor's degree is far better, far more empowering. And I look at my, my 10 years at Xerox, um, which evolved um, quite dramatically, uh, toward a, the digital end of that business. But regardless, I kind of see that as my bachelor's degree in business. My MBA was at Crystal and Business Objects. And I, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging this much as I say this, but I feel personally, my doctorate was at Marquette. Awesome. Um, all those experiences added up to like a career. I've been very, very um, pleased with.
1: And can you tell us a little bit about how the sales management was at that organization back then? And i I have it in my head that it's old school and it's grindy and they're trying to push you to do more. And there's not the boundaries that there are today in sales management, but I may have that completely wrong. What was the sales management style at Xerox?
2: Well, first of all, there was the framework and structure but how it was individually applied obviously makes a big difference. So those folks who had to rely completely on the framework were often very micro-styled managers. Um, we had to keep track of every call we made. We had to pl- we had to submit at the beginning of the week what were our planned calls for the week. And if we weren't getting 10 face-to-face, because you traveled then, the, you know, the no- the phone was almost like an evil device um, in the eyes of Xerox. The culture was we're paying you to go see customers and knock on doors and get appointments and If you didn't have at least ten calls a day, so fifty in a week of all different types, um, you know you were somehow missing the mark. Now, I had one manager who was who was um, very difficult to work for, and you know followed that cadence to the letter of the law. And our team struggled, frankly. And, and that fella uh, went to go do something else and a new, a new guy came in. And um, this guy was more recently a rep and had a little bit more empathy and uh, realistic with expectations and wanted honesty more than anything else. And it struck me, that difference, because was I completely honest with the first manager? I did to say it, but no, because I just didn't want to get yelled at. But with, with my with my second sales manager, I was completely honest, and I grew a lot in that. I got lots of help where I needed it, and my you know my success uh, rapidly changed. And this guy gave me a great deal of confidence to pivot into the digital printing business at Xerox, um, which is a lot sexier. They were million dollar printers and mainframe connected devices, and I had to go apply a little bit of what I learned in school, but learn more about how to make that all work. And he supported me with that through a bit of a trough, you know, as you start something new and, um, you know, that pivot is largely what made my career at Xerox. It took me into that thread of the business. And, um, so that manager, I mean, to name him Tom Smith, Tom, awesome. um, you're a rock star, Tom, and I learned a great deal from you and I, I appreciate it. And then his manager fell named Jim Doherty, um, created a culture for winning and celebrating success and taking chances and um, stretching yourself on forecasts and making it and celebrating victories. And, you know, those two guys in my early days, Tom and Jim, had a huge impact on me in terms of how I tried to go propagate what my experience was with them.
0: It can't be overstated the impact that a manager can have on a rep, negatively or positively. That first manager, you gave him what he wanted. He wanted Metrics, right? So you gave him metrics, but the second one, you gave him honest feedback what's working, what's not working, how I'm feeling. He probably wanted to know all of that to improve the business rather than just look good. You don't see it very often now where you interview candidates who have Xerox on their their resume. But 15, 20 years ago, when I was interviewing candidates, I loved interviewing candidates from Xerox because I knew they were well trained. I knew that they had gone through this rigorous program and at least knew the basics of a sales process and a sales methodology.
2: That's good to hear. I think that's maybe partly why I got hired at Crystal uh, back then, because there wasn't a lot of structure and uh, to the organization and to a number of its approaches to dealing with customers and the like. And and those 10 years at Xerox in in my last year, I was running Southwestern Ontario for this printing and publishing business. It's about a $30 million book of business then. Um, and coming into a crystal, who at that time for that division, as you guys will remember, was about a $75 million company. I I had expectations of a lot more being in place and quickly went, wow, there's, there's, there's like very little. And for me being still a pretty young, uh, and inexperienced uh, person in my early thirties, I had, you know, moments where it's like, well, should I leave this because it's not ideal, or do you stop and go? It's not ideal, and it's a great opportunity. And um, it felt kind of—I felt desperate to prove myself right for taking the job. And as a consequence, said, "Okay, I'm going to treat this as an opportunity, but try and not bring too much of the heavy navy suit, red tie, starch shirt, shine shoes to the crystal uh, culture because it never would have worked," as you guys would know. But bring some of the sales forward nature to the culture of the company, bring proper compensation and incentive programs, make the job fun, focus on enablement and development and promoting guys like you into the jobs you got and, and your colleagues at the time, um, which, again, was a bit of a Xerox. I, I point to that with a Xerox reference because at Xerox, very few managers were hired in and almost every role across the entire company there was a serious culture of promote internally develop and promote and you know i'm pleased that crystal a stat for you there is uh, you know we went from like 15 or so to 150 or so inside sellers by the time business objects was rolling and i remember when i when i left and when that was done uh, i think we were running with circa 20 plus managers And I believe not a single one was an external hire. Every single one was internally promoted. And the power of the culture that gets created when you do that, the, the fungibility the organization has, the ability to take some chances and screw up and get some forgiveness from your organization, the ability to ask for more when you need it. And the ability, I think, for those managers to feel empowered to come up and say, "Hey, guys, I need this, and I need this help, or some of my people need this, or this is wrong." It when you have trust because you have built that in a in a bottoms up way, nothing's more powerful in my mind. And I was, uh, you know, thanks to guys like you, some pretty exciting things happened there, and and some by design and some by just good fortune, but um, all by good people.
1: When you were up and coming at Xerox, was that your first exposure to office politics or corporate politics? Did you recognize that some of those things were taking place at the company? And how did you recognize them? And what did you do?
2: Um, You know, not when I first started, I was pretty naive. I was, you know, the Regina boy who uh, two years earlier was selling water filters door to door, which in Regina was an easy job because the water was horrible. Still might be, but regardless, um, I didn't, I didn't really catch on to that probably until I advanced a little further in the organization. And uh, it was, it was at that level of management where um, a found some brilliant leaders. Kevin Francis was the CEO of, of Xerox Canada when I was there this guy was amazing and is amazing. I think he's retired now, but an amazing leader and very much believed in meritocracy. Um, and, and I thrive in in that kind of environment and try and promote that. However, you know, I definitely saw from levels beneath him, um, you know, a bit of a need to kiss the ring in order to, um, move your career path. And, um, I'm probably not that good at that kind of thing. I'm, I'm much more interested in just letting performance uh, dictate uh, what goes on in my career and um, get a little bit exhausted by, you know, some of the games that I saw get played. It wasn't that rampant. I'm probably making it sound worse than it was. It wasn't that rampant, but I more observed it and abstained rather than participated. And it's probably why ultimately I ended up leaving because I felt like, hmm, I think to move up further in this organization, a I'd have to stay in Ontario and I wanted to move to this wonderful city and be um, I don't think I was going to go too much further because that wasn't really in my playbook.
1: That's so interesting because we had an episode and we talked about Office politics and the corporate games. And we talked about playing the game as a first timer. And this was your first exposure to it. And your strategy was, you know, that's not me. If I'm going to excel in this organization, that might have to be. And I'm going to say thank you for everything that I've learned here. And I'm going to go and find a place where I can be me. Is that, did I capture that right? Is that fair?
2: Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that statement. It was a contributing factor, not the only one, sure. and probably not the most prevailing one. But I wanted to go somewhere that had less of that kind of modus operandi in order to advance a career. And I was I was truly interested in meritocracy. And, and I saw a number of interesting things at Crystal, but my feelings were, um, it was an organization in transition. It may have had some of that, um, in its history, but I thought I saw a CEO who was really trying to turn and say, "Clean sheet, let's go, and let's base everything we do here on supporting people for high performance." And yeah. uh, it was one of the big reasons I joined.
0: Yeah, my experience in organizations since Crystal has been that I look back at Crystal and realize, for its size, it had very little politics. I I didn't get have to get cut up in kissing the ring in order to become a manager or order to move up in the organization. Maybe Europe was a little bit of a different story when in business objects, but Crystal, it really kept that Greg kept that, uh, Greg Crowfoot, the CEO kept that to a minimum. So did you have, um, when you were looking at joining the organization, how did you go about qualifying? Is this the place for me? And, And what, what did you get right? And what did you get wrong?
2: Yeah, so qualifying the place for me was, would I be able to add value? And uh, I, I most certainly wanted to get into something smaller. Xerox was about $17 billion in revenue when I was there. And software, enterprise software, was probably about a category that was maturing for sure, but five, six, seven years old, really. Um, and this is around 1999,
0: 2000.
2: Mm-hmm. And my first meeting was with a person from HR. And uh, you know, gave me a good introduction to the company. what struck me is the youth and the casual nature of the company compared to Xerox. And um you know the space uh, you know seemed to resonate with me, this this notion of business intelligence and analytics and reporting. I'd been selling printing equipment that printed reports, formatted, and printed them. For me, this was now about you know stepping out of that mold mode and getting into you know viewing these sorts of documents and printing them. But regardless, the value prop resonated with me and I was intrigued by the youth and the unstructured informal nature that I was seeing in the company. I had a couple other interviews and then I met with the CEO. Uh, and some of you know him, Greg Kerfoot, we had mentioned his name earlier. And I'll never forget it. I show up for the interview in a pinstripe Navy suit, tight white starched shirt, red tie, gleam off the shoes, roll into his office. He's in boxers perhaps, and a t-shirt with holes in it, you know? And for me, I was like, whoa, okay, (laughs) this is so different. And uh, I got very uh, enamored with just how different this culture and company was going to be and the change it was going to bring into my life. And I was also very um, impressed, extremely impressed with a lot of people and in particular, Greg Kerfoot as being brilliant and um, unique. And I, at Xerox, there's a lot of, um, of starched shirts, you know, uh, and I was one of them. And at Crystal, it didn't matter. And that for me felt kind of empowering, a little bit scary, wondered if I would fit in or not. And I definitely had to adapt. Because when I started, I think I was kind of awkward in, in, in the company, and I had to loosen up a little bit more and also get used to the fact that there was very little infrastructure, not a whole ton of supporting resources when compared to a Xerox. And I had to do a whole lot more for myself and create a whole lot more stuff, um, which may have been handed to me in the past. and um, But that got me pretty excited at the chance to kind of put my fingerprints into th- certain processes and activities, and to create things. And I would say at Xerox, it was hard to be a creator. You created for your customer in the moment. But in terms of creating workflow, process, structure, a lot of that was handed to you because they have to mm-hmm. repeat it over so many people. At Crystal, especially where I started in customer advocacy, and it was ground zero, no one else but me, I had to create a lot of that. I relied a lot on my Xerox experience and materials even to crystallize them. But, um, that, that was a lot of fun and, and definitely felt like I was in the hurricane,
0: but a good hurricane.
1: So you, this is a little known fact, or maybe it isn't, but Greg actually started in customer advocacy at crystal.
0: I remember that from my orientation, you were still in customer advocacy and you spoke to us. And I remember two things you said, think in customer time and I'm dealing with way too many angry customers, so no more bad deals.
2: <laughs> we, had, we had a lot of bad deals. We did have a lot of bad deals, but uh, people sure uh, tried really hard to make customers happy. It was about creating fewer unhappy customers, really.
1: So you find yourself in an environment where you think it's a better fit, where you can be you. And I love what you said. You said Xerox was a little too structured. And it wasn't me necessarily doing the structure. I was more following. This was an organization where you could put your artistic touch on what the organization crystal could be. And I think that that's important. It made for very
2: interesting work and a lot of personal development and a lot of personal development.
1: We discussed that you started in customer advocacy. How did you pivot to become the VP of sales?
2: Yeah. So I'll try and be quick because this could be a long story and I'm a little known to tell long stories, but um, the company had a fair bit of turmoil in the sales organization in particular, the quarter I joined, uh, there was a massive miss, largely because half the company had been sold the quarter before. And a lot of people got a big payday and they kind of took off the summer. And as a result of that, um, executive management at what was then Seagate Software, as you guys might recall, Crystal was like a division of Seagate. We were still, sorry, let's rewind that back. It was Seagate Software, which became Crystal. And um, there was a lot of pressure from the top, even though we were a rounding error in Seagate's business, to understand why we missed our number by circa 50%. It was a huge miss. And um, Greg Kerfoot, the CEO, reacted like many of us would. And said, okay, I think it's time to make a change in a significant way. And regrettably, we had a layoff, as you might recall. And I think in order, in order of magnitude, if I remember, I was about 75% of uh, the sales force and sales management were let go, including uh, the executive management. And uh, I had come in in customer advocacy. First of all, I was worried my job was going to disappear because other layoffs went on in the organization, you know, last in, first out. And Greg gave me some great assurance and said, you're good. Don't worry about it. I had a new family. I just moved here. You know, I was kind of uptight about it all. You're good. Just, we're going to probably need you to help out in sales. You've, you've had this experience. I know that's not your job, uh, but I must have shown him that I have some skills in front of a customer because we went and saw all our best clients together. And um, he's like, where I need help, are you willing to help? I've said, like, sign me up. And uh, so that carried on for about six months. While they look for a new sales leadership. I remember going down to San Francisco with the CEO, the CTO, the head of product to go see Intel, who was one of our largest customers. And uh, we arrived in reasonably late. Uh, We're at the Hyatt. My cell rings. It's the CEO. And he's like, "Uh, will you come up to my hotel room? Which even in the... I still had a little bit of the Xerox world going on going, I've never gone into like another my boss's hotel room like, not that i expected anything untoward but it was just a weird you know dynamic and i roll in there and and uh the ceo and the cto were rooming together you know which also for me was kind of different from xerox days and i get in there and uh the ceo asked cto to leave <laughs> i'm like oh no is this where i'm getting canned you know and uh, the CEO turns and says, listen, we've been looking. I know you said you'd help out any way, any way you can. Um, I want you to take this role on, set aside your customer advocacy role. I want you to become the VP of North American sales. And um, intro. Knowing that six guys had done this job over the last three years, I was a little bit anxious about what might happen. So I, I said to Greg, hey man, like, I've got, I've got a one-year-old at home. I've got what I felt was a jumbo mortgage at the time. Times have changed. Um, and and uh, I want to go do this, but there's, you know, there's a lot of dead bodies uh, on this highway. And to his credit, he goes, if it doesn't work out. I guarantee you your job back in customer advocacy. It's guaranteed. Just go in there, help us weather a storm for another six to nine months, and, and off you go. I said, all right, let me think about it. I'll let you know the next day. Talk talked to my wife. said, are you prepared for this? I'll be traveling a heck of a lot more, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, let's go for it. And I made a very deliberate decision when I went into that. My decision was, I'm actually not going to go back to customer advocacy. If this doesn't work out, I'll leave the organization, was, was my theory. Because I kind of felt like if I didn't get myself into that mindset, and I always felt like I had this little safety net, I may not go at it in the way I needed to go at it, which is for me a little, I need that empowerment of being like, I got nothing to lose. And I'm going for it kind of mentality. And Greg gave me, or the CEO gave me a great deal of, um, latitude, frankly, to do what I needed to do. And, um, there were some fantastic people there who hadn't been like, go. we're very loyal to the company and we're thirsting to learn. And they hadn't had the benefit of 10 years of Xerox. And that kind of collaboration was was a little bit magical. I have to admit, I was at first not the biggest believer in inside sales. And um, the three fellows who were running that group uh, convinced me to make a few bets, which I did because I, I felt they, they were very passionate about what they wanted to do. And uh, we made those bets together and they really paid off. And uh, it transformed my thinking about inside sales, where we went from um, field sellers outnumbering inside sales two to one, roughly right. And at the end of the, uh, the day, when we were said and done there, uh, inside sellers were outnumbering field sellers by almost three to one. Uh, so the growth in the inside team was huge. And, and guys like you joined and thrived in that. And uh, our unit economics of, of sales And that company radically improved, so much so that we did all that expansion without burning a cent of any cash into the organization. And uh, our revenue growth went from declining to 40% year on year, very quickly, mixed with a freemium-type strategy that was vital to doing it. But um, that, that whole thing, I wandered on there a little bit, but that night in that hotel room was one of those seminal moments in my life. That changed, uh, changed my life for me. And I was given an opportunity and I decided to jump in that headlong.
1: Awesome. So you're now in the pilot seat. You're looking at all the controls. This is your baby. What were some of the things that you did? What were some of the fingerprints that looking back that you put on that sales machine that changed the organization and helped it accelerate like you just described?
2: That's that's a tough question, frankly, um, because it was a very collaborative effort. uh, First of all, I think, but um, I would like to think that one of the biggest things I did was bring the inertia to pivot the company to a a much more sales forward culture, and that meant um, everything from compensation, which you know, from time to time, you know, raised the raised issues with finance and engineering and other functions were like, why do we have to pay these sales guys so much? Why do we have to offer these bonuses? Why do we have to give away cars? Why did our president's clubs move to Hawaii (laughs) at the Four Seasons? Um, uh, Why are we paying bonuses on million dollar transactions? All these things sort of went on to say, hey, without revenue, there is no oxygen in this organization. So we must provide all the conditions to maximize that oxygen. Because with revenue, we will create the products and continue to take the geniuses that are in this company to create solutions that's going to allow us to dominate this category. And every sales guy that could go make a million dollars, which was my goal to see at least one get there. And we had, I believe, two over our time to make a million dollars in the year and for an inside seller to make at least a quarter million dollars in a year. Um, each time that happened, I felt like, all right, I think my fingerprints, now that I think about it, my fingerprints were in the organization. Because that meant our the culture of the organization became something that didn't look at sales as spoiled and lazy, but looked at them as professional and thriving and worth every penny. And um, I, th- I think of anything that I hope in combination with some outstanding leaders, some of which I inherited, some of which I hired. We were able to foster that, which hopefully gave people uh, the confidence that, that mixed with, I think, some pretty solid enablement, but the confidence to go out and be successful and, and, and a belief that people could grow their careers by um, trying to follow somewhat of a playbook that's been laid in front of them by the organization. I don't know, you guys were there. Perhaps there's other things, and maybe that sounds kind of shallow, but that culture, I think, was was a big pivot for the organization. And it gave the fuel, that energy, the fuel to attract better talent and set people loose um, to go out there and really make some exciting things happen. Um, and 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 again, I don't want to take all the credit for it because that would be a complete, horrible boast. But um, some like minded people helped bring that to life.
1: I don't know if if you remember this or not, but I remember the car giveaway and it was three Mercedes SLKs back when they had the Mercedes SLK and it was a reverse draw, reverse draw, right? That's right. Yes. And I made it to the top or I guess the bottom 10 and had three ballots left and I'm going... I have a chance at winning this thing. And Greg Wolf pulled my name three times in a row and I was out. Oh, I don't know if you remember that, Greg, but clearly I still do. I ended up getting one of
0: the cars on the second try when someone left the country and I got, I, they raffle it off again. I got the car.
2: Well, John, clearly bad memories like that. I (laughs) 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 Number one and number two, you know, I actually think uh, that's that I I say silly. Silly is the wrong word, but that car thing, did, did cause a cultural shift. And now that's why I got to have to mention the, you know, the bachelors to the masters totally stole that from Xerox, mm-hmm. not terribly expensive, three-year lease, high residuals, the reverse taunting draws were completely a Xerox thing. That's how everything was done there. So was Joker's wild? Joker, Joker, no Joker's wild was, a that, that was a bit of an invention of mine. And then I had a, People thinking I was promoting gambling in a weird way in that whole thing, which wasn't good. But um, these incentives, I grew up with that in Xerox. There was incentive every quarter, sometimes every month, two clubs a year. Um, it was rich with incentives and you would go after them because you could go have fun or you could drive a convertible Mercedes and, you know, you'd be like 25 years old ripping around in that. I think at the time, um, given that nothing like that was happening in the organization, it was pretty powerful. Very simplistic, but pretty powerful.
0: Just to clarify what Joker's Wild is, it's a sales incentive known as a spiff, And there were two ways to qualify. The the anti-up phase, the first month of the quarter, and then some secondary phase in the second month. And I actually had a PO that was rejected by finance on the last day of one quarter and then it slipped into July. And then Greg announced this Joker's Wild contest. It was for $400,000. And so it put me in this maximum spot to qualify for the next round where we closed a big deal, me and my field sales rep closed a big deal at Wendy's. So I bought my first condo with the money from Joker's Wild, Greg. So thank you. That's absolutely true. out, really? That Man, you, you had some re- luck.
2: You won the card because <laughs> some guy left, <laughs> left and you get the fall over deal that perfectly lines up for you. Well, you know what? For every one time those things happen, you also get burned the other way is what I've learned. And that's why when people would generally be like, oh, this has screwed me or whatever. It's stop and go. Hopefully next time it doesn't, you can't account for every possible outcome, but I'm glad it worked for you. John, too bad you didn't get the car. I
1: I walked home. Andrew bought a condo. Seems fair. (laughs) Seems fair.
2: Well, you both seem to have done pretty well for yourselves now, so uh, it couldn't hurt you too
0: much. It's all good. Business objects acquires crystal and that creates a whole new environment, a whole new political arena. And they were bigger than us and they had this swagger. They had the marketing machine, even though we thought our products, I think our products were superior, but they had the brand name and they were publicly traded and they were perceived as more successful and they were the ones acquiring us. Yet we had so many executives that went on to prosper there and you personally eventually became the EVP of business objects. Despite it being Crystal was a successful company. It was growing 30, 40% quarter over quarter. It was still really stressful. and, and, And success was not by any means certain. I certainly felt the constant pressure that if we missed one single quarter, the idea of an IPO would be another three years out. And I laid awake at night worrying about deals. But for you, you're laying awake at night thinking about hundreds of deals. How did you deal with the stress and uncertainty? What did you do to, to, to try and not project that and, and put that on other people?
2: Yeah, you know what? First of all, I don't think I dealt with it super well. Uh, not that I was projecting under other people. That isn't really my nature. But I got a little bit probably self-destructive in, in that case. Uh, that my health uh, not be where I wanted it to be. And uh, probably went faster into a little bit of a burnout phase than I should have. I wasn't burned out then, but it hit me harder years later after Business Objects bought the company, um, and and I had to stop to get to get my physical health and my mental health in in, in a better condition. But notwithstanding that, um, I think the way I handled it was I had to very quickly recognize and understand especially as the second or third level manager, I can only impact so many deals. So let's pick the deals I feel I could impact. So I felt like I had purpose and I wasn't completely helpless in this equation. So for me, those were the million dollar transactions, the half a million plus, and through the quarter, I wanted to be on those personally all the time. Then I had to quickly remind myself that I can't touch the literally thousands of transactions we would do in a quarter. All I can do is support the finance organization and the fulfillment organizations to get everything done because we were very back end loaded and rely on my leaders to be as passionate as I was trying to demonstrate to them to drive the agenda, to ask a lot of their teams, to support their teams in that equation. And I know that sounds like such common sense, but as you guys know, we've all sold so you sometimes you feel like i need to get in there and get this thing done um and i i did get freed of a lot of anxiety as soon as i went it's in others hands i've done all i can do now all i can do is support and you know go occasionally you know argue with finance over deals like go do representation that way but had to trust people to go be successful and um And I certainly found out through those quarters, because I live by the same, I got a 90-day contract on my job. Um, I certainly found out who I could trust and rely on. And for example, if you guys, both of you, I remember specifically, if you didn't deliver an order that you had forecasted and committed, and that maybe Rob or Andy or Randall or Troy or someone had committed on your behalf to me, if you couldn't get it done, I knew no one could. And with that, I was, you know, it's kind of like the saying of, you don't want to have any regrets, so leave it all out in the field. I felt like every quarter we could leave it out in the field, and therefore I would have no regrets if it went the wrong direction. And I believe, uh, guys, you know, the COO who became my boss and the CEO, um, I think they saw it, felt it, believed it. And uh, the few times we did have minor misses, because we didn't miss often, and when we did miss, we didn't miss by a lot. Um, they knew that we did everything we could possibly do. And I think that bought a lot of license for us to, um, to take some chances and to stretch and to reach for some numbers that were maybe arguably we shouldn't even going after. They were a little bit far. And they didn't want to squash that. And they didn't want me to squash that because that kind of ambition and reach um, can sometimes get tapped down. And when it does, it starts to poison the culture. So um, most definitely I found I had to trust my team and uh, And you know, thank God, I had some brilliant people, hardworking and committed,
1: and trustworthy people working for me was and so what you described there was that sort of element of culture there before you joined as the VP of sales, or is that something that you instilled, that strive, that go farther, that push because I certainly remember that 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 era of you know, push and go far and, and and see what this thing can do. Is that something that that you brought in from your, from your experience at Xerox? Are those, is that like the DNA you would say was missing when you first got there when you described it as not really a lot of process and the sales machine needed tweaking?
2: I think that was, yeah, definitely a component of it. Um, I think it's a little bit of my nature, maybe even more than something Xerox conditioned, just as an aside, it might be a little bit more Um, how I'm motivated. And um, I think the reason it wasn't there before is I do really believe the CEO and some other executives, influential executives in the company did not trust the sales leadership Mm -hmm. on a repeated basis, did not. And when I say leadership, I mean, senior, senior sales leadership. There, There was a gap of trust. And since I had only been there a few months before this all went down, um, I can't really speak to all of that, but there was a bit of a hangover and mm-hmm. a lack of trust. And I think that's one thing I was able to do with the CEO, maybe by working directly for him for a short period of time in customer advocacy and speaking pretty honestly with him about things. Is he felt he could trust me, and 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 I tried to never dishonor that trust. You know, that was really important to me. And then I wanted to make sure the CFO could trust me. And the COO could trust me and the head of product could trust me. And then when I told them things and, and key people on my teams spoke to them, we were speaking genuinely with honesty. We weren't trying to maneuver something or can make a set of conditions that, um, you know, individually benefited somebody. Um, I, I tried to stamp out that kind of behavior and, um, work very hard in maintaining those trusts so that we could stretch for things and occasionally fail in those efforts without, you know, some sort of severe uh, consequence. That didn't mean we didn't hold people accountable, uh, as you guys know. Um, But it did mean that when the collective, you know, missed something, the judgment was not collective, And um, it let me protect a lot of my leadership team, too. Not that they needed protection, but, you know, the feelings were we are executed at a high level, especially in the Americas. Um, And because even there, you know, business objects who ended up acquiring us. We were larger than business objects in the Americas, and we were growing radically faster. And, uh, you know, we could always hold on to that. Some other companies, MicroStrategy, business objects, to a degree, Cognos we were struggling in the Americas. And I think our go-to-market strategy mixed with our execution is why we were winning. And, and all of that built trust with our shareholders and our senior executives, that the occasional two, three, 4%, I think our worst miss was 5% off a of forecast ever, um, which has always been my rule of thumb, plus or minus five. Uh, let's give, give me numbers that look like that. Um, I don't recall us ever missing worse than that. Um, And I'm actually very proud of that. And I hope you guys are too, because you're a part of it.
0: Well, I certainly remember the accountability.
2: (laughs) That concludes part one of our two-part series with Greg Wolf on The Rally Call. Join us
1: next week for part two. If you like the show, follow us on LinkedIn. We're The Rally Call. Follow us on Spotify, on Apple. Share the word. Let's get it out. There's a sales revolution coming, and it's starting with The Rally Call. The
2: Rally Call is produced by Scott Switzer.